Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we held between Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach, and Leah Palagashvili, Senior Research Fellow, both here at Mercatus, on independent workers, the gig economy, innovation, labor law, economics, and much more. If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thank you for joining us. I'm Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The Mercatus Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, university-based research center. Our research is grounded in economics, and we focus on bridging the gap between academia and public policy. Today, Dr. Leah Palagashvili, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center and law and economics fellow at NYU School of Law, is going to discuss her research, which focuses on the intersection of innovation, entrepreneurship, and America's workforce. We're going to cover a lot of her new and exciting research today. Now, Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to ask you just to start with a brief overview of your research. Thank you, Karen. And hello, everyone. I've dedicated my work at Mercatus to addressing how the world of work is changing and what it means for policy. So we are living through decades of incredible changes, whether it's the growing adoption of automation in the workplace or increased levels of globalization shaping labor markets, or the growth of new technologies enabling platform type of work, which is often referred to as the gig economy or the freelance movement, or more broadly, the independent workforce. So today I'll focus on that last point because we're finding ourselves in this height of the independent workforce revolution, perhaps. And it's a change that is shaped by both new technologies and our own revised appreciations for flexibility, independence, and entrepreneurship. At the same time, the growth of the independent workforce poses a lot of challenges for labor policy. Independent workers, whether they're the Uber drivers that uh, you may see around you or a self-employed home decorator or our freelance writers, they are all united in that they are not legally employees. This means that employment-based policies such as the minimum wage, sick or paid leave, unemployment benefits, and health insurance, and, and many others, do not apply to independent workers. As a result, we've seen the emergence of several policies that try to solve uh, this problem. Uh, for example, California recently passed Assembly Bill 5, or AB5 for short, which was an attempt to force many independent workers to become employees. The PRO Act, which is pending uh, in the Senate at the moment, also contains aspects that would try to push independent workers into the employment category. Before I jump into discussing the effectiveness of some recent policy solutions, I'll describe first what we know and what we don't know about the growing independent workforce. Uh, There's a lot of confusion about who are these workers Are the majority of them the Uber drivers? Are they working full-time? Is this workforce in fact growing and in which industries? The four brief key takeaways I'll address about this workforce today are, one, a vast majority of independent workers are not your Uber, Lyft, or DoorDash workers. They consist of a tiny fraction of the overall and growing independent workforce. The second thing is we're seeing an unprecedented rise of women as participants in the independent workforce. And this has a lot of implications that I'll also unpack today. And three, uh, using tax data, we do see significant growth of independent workers since 2001. 
and they are primarily in industries of professional, scientific, and technical services, as well as in healthcare and other services such as repair and maintenance, private household services, and, and they're also in religious, grant-making, civic, and professional organizations. And the fourth key takeaway is across many, many different surveys, we find a unifying theme that independent workers prefer their non-employment arrangements because they value the significantly greater flexibility um, in this type of work. And what this means is that policies that may try to force them out of independent work arrangements may not be the most desirable, but what I'll do is discuss what other types of alternatives or what other types of solutions, perhaps such as greater access to portable benefits, you know, which may be better alternatives for independent workers. So with that intro out of the way, I'll uh, let Karen dive in with her questions. All right. Thanks, Leah. A lot of people think the idea of the gig economy is only for big cities, whether you take an Uber from Capitol Hill to Georgetown, if you're in the D.C. area or if you're in Casper, Wyoming, uh, you know, you wouldn't take one to Laramie. So how does independent work, either through employment or access to services, help people who live outside major cities or even in rural areas? Uh, So that's a great question, Karen, and it gets to addressing an important misunderstanding (laughs) regarding what do we mean by the gig economy? And I want to take some time just to unpack this if we're getting to your actual question, because it can lead to a lot of confusion about who are we talking about when we say the gig economy. So most of us imagine the gig economy, as I mentioned, is your Uber driver or your DoorDash deliverer. But again, it's important to point out that Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash are what's called a subset of the overall independent workforce. So actually, when you see a headline or read a news article that says, new research finds that the gig economy is on a rise, nine times out of 10, that research is actually based on all independent workers. So like your friend who's a self-employed wedding planner or that freelance musician, you know, that's who they're also talking about, not just only Uber and Lyft. And the same thing goes for policy, right? So California's AB5 was marketed as the gig bill or the gig economy bill, because it was aimed and it was marketed for trying to go after Uber and Lyft. But the problem is because Uber drivers, freelance musicians, your electrician or your plumber are all legally classified as non-employee category. So California's AB5 impacted this entire independent workforce, not just Uber or Lyft. And that actually, that's why there was a lot of pushback on AB5 after it passed especially from the uh, creative community, dancers, uh, singers, fine artists in California, they were all subject to the same gig bill, even though they're not your typical gig worker. So with that being said, when we broaden our understanding of who encompasses you know, this independent workforce, we actually will see them all around our communities, whether in, in urban or rural areas. Uh, as just an example, In my uh, recent Mercatus Center study, my co-author and I found 122 different independent worker roles across the United States. And we found a diversity of roles like graphic designers, electricians, fitness trainers, right? Therapists, dog walkers, plumbers, nannies, uh, translators, landscaping and groundskeeping workers, housekeepers, photographers, tutors, and much more. So it's just beyond it's it's beyond just Uber drivers and DoorDash delivers who are much more prevalent in urban cities. Now that's not to say that your typical gig platforms are not well serviced in rural areas. We definitely saw a rise actually of the use of food delivery apps during the pandemic in more rural areas as well. 
And just to give you some statistics on the majority of independent workers, you know, not being your typical gig economy workers, the IRS study that I had mentioned before that basically used tax data, they found that after including many different gig platforms for labor services, Uber, DoorDash, Lyft, Via, this type of worker constituted only 8.6% of the entire independent workforce. And again, this study was quite broad because it included anyone who did any type of gig work. So if you did two hours on Lyft at any time, they still included that number in. But the IRS study actually found that the majority of the growth of these gig workers are individuals who are doing it as supplemental income, meaning they're not working on gig platforms as their full-time job. If we look only at gig workers who are full-time on these platforms, uh, again, such as Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, they actually constitute less than 1% uh, of the overall full-time independent workforce. (laughs) Wow. I don't think a lot of people realize that. That's very significant. I think they do think of the DoorDash and the Ubers. They don't think of your independent painter or your independent dog walker. Good points. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next question. Based upon your research, what are the main benefits of independent work for the people who pursue it and to the economy as a whole? Right. So the consensus among over a dozen surveys is that independent workers prefer their non-traditional labor arrangements precisely because this is the number one answer, the increased flexibility, as as we could imagine. Uh, Just to give some examples of some of the recent research on this, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that 79 percent of independent contractors preferred their arrangement over a traditional job for the reason of flexibility. There's also great surveys that uh, annual surveys that are done by it's called the freelancing in America report. And the latest one in 2019, they found that 71% of freelancers prefer their jobs uh, because of the increased flexibility of their work. And um, actually about 46% of them said they are unable to work for a traditional company due to personal circumstances. So they, you know, that's why they choose to go into independent work that and interestingly, actually, that study also found that 51% of individuals are engaging in independent work, they indicate that there's no amount of money that would entice them to switch back to traditional employment. And so Karen, something to point out about this type of work is that they may value flexibility a lot more than you and I do, or the average person in this room does, or the average worker does in the economy as a whole. So there's actually a study on exactly this. It was an economic study that was published in the Top Economics Journal. And they found that Uber drivers would have to be paid almost double in order to accept a more rigid, inflexible schedule. Now, that's not the type of thing you see across an average employee. And that's not, it just means that independent workers vastly value flexibility, and it's very important for their jobs. So that would be the main benefit for the workers themselves. That's why they tend to go into this type of work. Okay, now let's talk about women in the workforce. What have you found are the major motivators for women to pursue independent work arrangements? And how are they benefiting from this non-traditional employment? So follow up to what you just were mentioning. Exactly. So it's on this point of flexibility, but just something to point out, again, we don't think of women as independent workers because the concept of the gig economy with Uber and DoorDash is is dominant in our minds. And when we look around us, most Uber drivers or DoorDash deliverers are male and not female. So we don't naturally think of women as independent workers. So it's kind of counterintuitive. And you're like, what are you talking about? But actually, um, a recent study found that if the transportation sector is omitted, women actually comprise a greater share of income earners 
on these digital platforms. Now, take an example of Etsy. It's an e-commerce platform. And year after year, more than 85% of the independent sellers are all women. And we see the same for dog walkers, as an example, nutritionists, um, translators, massage therapists. These are all majority female uh, independent roles. And actually, the tax uh, study data that I referenced above, they found that from 2001 to 2016, this was published by the IRS, they found that women accounted for a greater increase than men in the total number of independent workers. And this was during a period where female employment uh, was relatively flat. So what that means is that we've seen greater growth um, of women as independent workers uh, than women as employees uh, since 2001. Now, the question is, why is this the case, right? Why are we seeing increases in, in women as independent workers? And that relates to um, what I had just mentioned before, which is this flexibility. There's a substantial research on women participating in these non-employment, non-traditional arrangements because it allows them for greater flexibility and structuring their days, which is crucial for women who are primary caregivers and their households. There is a good uh, survey that followed 2,000 women as independent workers, and it found that 96% of them, so vast, vast majority of women working as independent workers, indicated that the primary benefit of doing so, or the primary reason of doing so, was flexibility, flexibility of working hours. And the survey also found that a quarter of those women had recently left traditional employment voluntarily. And a majority of of them indicated doing so because they needed flexibility or they needed more time to care for a child, parent, or relative. So by the way, another telling study came from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and they found that women on average across all of the U.S. um, have a higher willingness to pay for jobs with greater flexibility uh, than do men. So that's partly why we're seeing greater participation of women as independent workers. And uh, by the way, I have a recent paper out on this as well. It's available on our Mercatus website. It's called Women as Independent Workers. And my co-author and I find that women self-select into independent work roles where greater autonomy defines the work, uh, where the role allows for greater freedom to make decisions and to structure activities and where the work weeks are shorter. So essentially, it captures this concept of flexibility. And so we find even within independent worker roles, women tend to go into the type of independent worker roles where there's greater flexibility. It's funny you said that because when we were doing our practice session, one of my kids was listening in and she said, this is all common sense to me. And I said, no, but now we have data to back it up because we hear anecdotal stories all the time, but it's nice to know that the research is there, whether it's your research or other research that really backs up all this information. So it's not just people making it up. Do we know much about the level of independent work in the United States compared to independent work in other countries? So that's a great question. So There was a recent study in an economics journal that compared independent work in Italy, United Kingdom, and the United States, and it found actually greater prevalence of independent work in Italy, which is quite interesting. And but by the way, they looked at all, they also looked at a survey across all OECD countries, and you see quite huge differences anywhere ranging, I, I can't remember exactly the the range, but it was something like four to twenty-two percent of the workforce and in, 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 in countries 
for independent workers. So Italy, I remember, was at the top of the list uh, for more independent workers than the United States, actually. A lot of this is connected to like informal economies. So there's some researchers at the World Bank, too, who are kind of connecting that research between independent work and also informal economies and sectors. Do we know of any economic studies that look at the effect of independent work on total income and compensation growth and perhaps more comprehensive measures of well-being that would include not only income, but also flexibility and contentment and fulfillment? Well, if it exists, that would be awesome. <laughs> I haven't seen that the, the latter part about it encompassing all of these all of these other types of benefits. There isn't the IRS study that I had referenced looked at independent workers across different uh, income quartiles. They did find that the greater share of independent workers are those um, who are in the top income quartile. So that was pretty interesting. Um, I was a pretty interesting finding, but I haven't seen like an all inclusive study that you had that you had mentioned, uh, but I think it would be great if it existed. Can you provide a little more info on the growth in women as independent workers? Uh, Yes. So that was the IRS uh, tax data. They found that women accounted for 55% of the growth in the independent workforce between 2001 and uh, 2016. So that one came primarily from from tax data. Now, if we look at survey data, we'll get slightly different findings. In some of the survey data, like Freelancing in America report, they find men comprise a greater share of freelancers than do women. So again, we'll see different findings because it's different methodologies. But I like to say that the IRS or the tax data, none of the studies are the best, obviously, but the IRS and the tax data among economists, we believe that those are much better than the, than the survey studies. But by the way, something to point out as well, that when we, instead of looking at the growth, if we do look at the composition, there are still greater men than women as independent workers. But again, as I mentioned in one of the studies, if you take out the transportation sector, you actually see that women comprise a greater share of independent workers than do men. But all inclusive, if we look at studies across the board, we do find that men cons- currently men constitute greater uh, are greater than women as independent workers, but the growth is happening more in women um, than in men. And actually, there's another tax data study that finds um, a similar finding. But in that second tax data study, they also find a greater growth in independent work among women more so than among men. If anyone is interested in any of the data, um, just send us an email. If anybody has a particular interest in any one of these issues, we'll be happy to share Leah's notes with you. Is there research or data about gender pay equity in the independent workforce? So there is the couple studies that exist on it do find that there's still a gender wage gap, even within independent workers. Now, one of the studies, one of the big ones is they look at um, a million ride-sharing drivers across Uber. So they got like private data to Uber and they still found kind of a gender wage gap in there. But the authors say this is primarily because of basically men are more likely to take on risks (laughs) and drive faster and and these various other aspects. So that's why, that's what they... um, conclude as why we see a greater gender wage gap, gender wage gap or differences in gender, uh, differences in gender earnings and Uber. So they attribute it to basically how, how they drive in the decisions that they make in those and driving. So that's the biggest study. Again, it has a lot, it's a lot of data. It's 1 million Uber drivers across the United States, and they got this, you know, private data to work with Uber and they do find differences in those gender earnings. But again, they, they attribute that mostly to the decisions of how women versus men um, 
tend to drive. As independent work becomes more widespread, the question about health insurance received through a person's employer is always uh, looming in the background. We know individual plans, if a person wants to go out and purchase one, if they're a solo practitioner or work for themselves, they're really expensive. So what changes to our employment law and or healthcare system would help to maximize the benefits of independent work? Yeah. So this is this is the million dollar question, right? It's like, you know, there are these independent workers, they don't have a lot of these benefits that come with employment. And as a result, we've seen like what I call uh, two buckets of solutions. Okay. So the first bucket I talked about, which is bucket number one is, okay, well, one way to get them some of these benefits and maybe access to health insurance is to, um, is a call to try to reclassify independent workers as employees. And this is something that I had mentioned that California's AB5 or, you know, the PRO Act tries to solve this problem in that way. And that's bucket number one. Now, bucket number two, uh, these are policy proposals that are kind of middle ground solutions. And it means that independent workers should continue to be classified as independent workers, but maybe there's a way to increase access to health insurance or other benefits uh, for these group of workers. And sometimes you'll hear this referred to as portable benefit solutions. And interestingly, um, there's evidence that find that independent workers do prefer portable benefit solutions. So that's bucket number two. As I had mentioned earlier, we know from survey research that independent workers do not want to become employees. However, in a pretty high profile study that was also published in a top economics journal, 80% of independent workers indicated that they would like access to flexible, shared, or portable benefits. And these are, again, benefits that are not tied to a particular employer, but can move around with you from, from job to job. So I think bucket number two type of solutions, these portable benefits, uh, make sense for future of work, if we're thinking about future of work issues, right? So for... and. Think about it this way. These are um, workers who value flexibility and it's a flexible workforce and you need flexible benefits to match up properly with a flexible uh, workforce. And just as an aside, I think portable benefits make sense for other future work issues as well. So uh, an important discussion is the growing adoption of automation in the workplace. And people have acknowledged that, you know, there's going to be some trend, even though that, like technologies might make us better off um, in the long run, in the short run, right, there's going to be some disruptions in the transition period, and many people might be unemployed. And so if all of your benefits and health insurance are tied to employment, like, what are you going to do when that time period comes where a lot of people um, are unemployed, and, you know, all all of the benefits are tied to employment. So it kind of creates a lot more disruptions um, than we would like to imagine. The whole concept of portable benefits has been debated in Congress for over two decades. So what you're saying, the time is right. The time is right now because post-pandemic, rise in uh, the independent workforce. If Congress is looking to do something, this would be one way to help those workers who want that type of flexibility. I I don't know if I'm summing it up appropriately, but... Yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up. Um, I've seen some proposals out there about uh, already, um, I can't remember exactly the name, but it was something like, oh, you know, trying to push for greater experimentation in portable benefit solutions. And I really think uh, that's, you know, that might be the right way forward Um, as well as um, so, but but there are some barriers that prevent us from happening in in the U.S. today. So, for example, the health insurance subsidy for employers creates a lot of uh, 
barriers to greater portable benefits, especially for health insurance, because it incentivizes and creates a dynamic where your health insurance should be tied with your employer. So those kind of barriers exist that prevent um, us from moving forward. Another thing, by the way, this is a very low hanging fruit solution, and it would be and it's an easy step just for gig economy or independent workers themselves. Right now, the IRS and other government agencies, um, if they actually see companies provide any type of benefits to their independent contractors, the IRS uses that factor um, as a way to push companies into thinking that, into classifying those workers as employees. So in other words, they punish companies that want to provide benefits to their independent contractors because they use it as a factor that says, oh, well, maybe these are employees. And it's actually, it's, it's not a secret. It's on their website. They say if they see the presence of employee benefits, right, um, they might use that as a reason to reclassify the entire workforce as employees. And this is something acknowledged by, like, by everyone that, you know, this particular factor uh, prevents gig companies or others from setting up like portable benefits solutions or portable benefits funds and giving access to some sort of benefits to their workers. And by the way, uh, some gig company CEOs have openly come out and said this, like, if this wasn't a barrier, we would try, we would, we would create other solutions. At the New York state level, which I'm more familiar with, there were, um, they tried to set up like a portable benefits fund at the state level for any workers who are independent workers or gig economy workers. It didn't pass, but again, it would be um, the, the, the main thing they were also mentioning was that we would have to have some sort of like safe harbor from this IRS test so that they don't get punished for providing benefits um, or giving access to benefits to their workers. Okay. So I'm going to follow up on that. If somebody wanted to work on this, what would Congress consider? What, I mean, would you have to rewrite the IRS rules? Would you have some type of a, a system where you, you would suspend those rules for a while? What should people in Congress do if they want to pursue this? Right. So I think um, in the, I, uh, the IRS uses the common law test um, for the classifications between independent workers and employees. And again, explicitly on their website, they use the presence of employee benefits. And so I think um, if Congress, I, I think one way to act is to, is to um, basically show that this is happening and say that they shouldn't be able to use it anymore. Um, and I think that would help gig workers being able to get access to um, benefits that their companies want to provide. Again, it might not be the end-all be-all solution, but it's a low-hanging fruit that could at least allow companies to start giving benefits to their workers if they want. And it also allows for more competition, right? Uh, if you're a gig worker for a uh, Lyft, or driver for Lyft, and uh, you see that Uber might start giving um, benefits, access to benefits, or set up a portable benefits fund on your behalf, you might be more inclined to jump over as an Uber driver than Lyft will see this, and they'll add that in as well. So um, I think it will create a, a great dynamic if that solution, that employee benefits factor is removed from the IRS, from the common law test. Now, the IRS is the agency that uses the common law test the most, but other agencies as well. But for those interested, it's in the common law test, the employee benefits factor. All right. I think some of your colleagues like Brian Knight talk about fintech sandboxes. Could this be a potential for a sandbox where you would suspend or if somebody wanted to test this out with these portable benefits, could you not have the IRS rules apply? Is that something Congress could pursue? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. I haven't thought about it in, in that, in that way, but yeah, if you could create a sandbox and also importantly, like a safe Harbor for States, right. Who want to set up, um, like if Utah wants to set up a, or New York wants to set up this portable benefits fund, they should have some ability or, uh, some sort of ability or a safe Harbor from the IRS, um, common law test that sees this presence of employee benefits. So again, we're seeing some of traction of portable benefits on the state level. So I think it's particularly important to kind of have that safe harbor from the IRS tests on that. Oh, that's great. In terms of a day-to-day experience, what are the major differences between traditional employees and independent workers in terms of the work itself? And is the only difference the temporary basis of the employment or are there other substantive differences in tasks and deliverables? Yeah, so that's a great question, Karen. Again, we think about independent workers as uh, they're doing, you know, they're just engaging in contract relationships with different parties, either whether it's with specifically with an individual. So you can, I buy services directly from Karen, who might be my graphic designer, right? Or it could work with organizations, whereas employees and employers are more like married. (laughs) That's how I think about it, right? You're tied and there's a permanent agreement. Now, um, beyond just those, that relationship, my colleague, uh, my co-author and I, we analyzed um, over 900 occupations across the U.S., and we looked at specific characteristics of these uh, jobs, and we actually found that independent workers are pretty unique in the type of work they produce, um, again, when compared to traditional employees. And we found that employees are more interdependent with teams, and they have a greater element of interactive coordination communication and shared responsibilities and results. In contrast, independent workers, uh, they provide what's called like more an individual-based product or service uh, that's more easily separable and discrete. So imagine like creating a screenplay, like one and done or tutoring a student. And actually, this is pretty important because I think these characteristics can explain why the concept of flexibility is a staple feature of the independent workforce. So for example, when there's greater reliance on interdependent team production, it's more difficult for an individual to uh, individual worker to maintain a flexible schedule, partly because they have to coordinate the joint efforts of team members, which may require that workers be available, maybe face-to-face at specific times. Um, whereas independent workers, they produce outputs or services that allow individuals to kind of schedule when they work at their own convenience. Proofreaders are typical independent work. They can work your regular hours, right? They can work the night shift, but imagine like your human resources manager or coordinator, they're kind of of little use during the night shift because of that greater element of interde- interdependence um, with other workers. Isn't shared risk a bigger issue than portability? Affordable health care is a function of critical mass with broad demographics. I mean, you spread the risk over uh, yeah. a huge population as, as opposed to a single person. This is a bigger issue than portability. Right. So I think um, there was some traction on, on things where I don't remember exactly what year this was, but allowing, allowing non-employers to also come together, so organizations to also come together um, and get similar benefits of providing churches, unions. Exactly. Yeah. Just so that might be one way. Yeah. associate. I, I can't remember exactly if um, what it was called, but there was some, there was some movement to allow this type of organizing so that it's not just coming from employers, but it's coming from different like groups and associations. And by the way, um, there are some 
organizations that exist today. There's the freelancers union. I mean, despite its name, it's not an actual union and like in the way that we think about it, but they pull together and they also provide access to health insurance across, across its members. So I think it's a great point that you raised. Then again, if we can think about ways of not just employers and uh, employer organizations, but others, right? Civic organizations, nonprofits, religious organizations grouping together as well. All right, great. How will remote or online independent work impact our immigration system? If a programmer can work for an American company from abroad without a visa, how should we classify this employment relationship? So it's a great question. It relates to other research that I, that I was doing, not related to independent workers, just for a moment, and then I'll, I'll answer the question. So I was part of a, a research study at, at NYU School of Law. We got a grant from the Templeton Foundation to study technology startups across the United States. And so we did surveys, we did fieldwork interviews with over 100 technology startups across the United States, and then we did um, a massive survey as well. And so what came across already, this this is pre-pandemic, okay? <laughs> this was 2018 and 2019 when we were doing these um, these surveys and these studies. And we actually found that so technology startups were already working with foreign workers in the uh, as contractors abroad. And the reason is like the, the talent that they really needed was software developer talent. And they mentioned that like, like it was really hard to get in the US and they didn't and, you know, they could have they could have left the ad up, but, it, you know, it didn't get filled for months. And they as a small startup, you need to move fast. Right. And you can't just, you know, have a position unfilled for six months. You need it filled like yesterday. (laughs) So what they mentioned is what they had to end up doing was work with a lot of foreign workers as contractors, as contractors abroad. So we actually found that in our sample, um, over, uh, over one third of technology startups we're working with foreign workers as contractors in different parts of the world. Now, the majority of these countries were like uh, they mentioned Estonia and the Baltic countries, Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, but again, it was existing like pre-pandemic. This problem was there that, um, you know, they didn't have the access to the right talent and they were already working with remote workers um, across the U.S. Now, post-pandemic, this likely increased uh, because greater telecommunication options norms have changed around this type of um, this type of thing. So, I suspect as it gets more difficult to bring in high-skilled foreign workers um, to the U.S. as formal employees, we'll see greater growth in this type of arrangement between organizations or companies with foreign contractors across across the world. Okay, I want to get back to, you just uh, referenced the future of work, and I know you've done a lot of uh, research in this area. And so let's talk about the future. What do the jobs look like? What skills will we need? How are people going to be spending their time? Can you give an overview of how our relationship with work might change in the coming decades and what policymakers can do now to make that a smoother transition? Yeah, so one of the main things that we see from the future of work and automation is that Basically, jobs that require more judgment and personal interaction won't be won't be replaced. Uh, there is also some of the like creatives type of jobs that won't be as automated, so to speak. Uh, so we're seeing some of the discussion now. There's actually a, a study that looked at the type of roles and the likelihood of those getting automated. And again, what I remember from them and what was pulled out in the studies is that roles that require a lot of judgment and where personal interactions are of greater importance 
um, you'll see those type of jobs being, uh, you know, less automated. Now, this is where I want to kind of bring everything together in terms in terms of policy. And I had alluded to this earlier. There are studies that show that for some period, now there's a difference between each one, but about the timing, but there will be a growing number of workers who will become unemployed as a result, right? And so there are, um, there are researchers who are talking about, okay, how can we help, um, you know, with, with these skill issues and all of that. But one important thing that I want to point out is back to the portable benefits and flexibility of benefits and not being tied to employment. Again, if we're concerned about future of work issues and we're concerned about um, some growing number of individuals being unemployed for some specific period of time, we can't have all of these benefits and everything being tied to employment, right? And so even if it's the growing independent workforce or or the fact that there's growing adoption in the workplace, all of these are pointing to, we've got to think more radically and drastically about changes to benefits being tied to employment. Uh, so again, I would push for thinking about um, how can we get more uh, portable benefits or things that are not tied to employment. All right, great. Remote jobs have the flexibility, but they also have the benefits associated with them, but you don't have to work that traditional nine to five job. Do you see a relationship with these two workforce trends? Oh, that's a great question, especially as it relates to women. So there was a new uh, study, economic study, that found that if employers adopt more, they basically more flexible arrangements, and if they do it to a you know to a a significant amount, not just you know you can have you can be flexible for some time, but for some period of time, but if, if they really adopt like more flexible arrangements, more remote working full time, even some hybrid hybrid arrangements where you're going in, you know, two, two days a week, but you can work remotely the other days. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually think there will be a great, the greatest benefit to women for flexibility. And while there's no studies on this, I actually think to the extent that these remote and more flexible arrangements on an employment basis become are great, are, are, are great you'll actually see more women in, in these employment-based work, and you might see a decline of women as independent workers. So it's unclear. It depends on how flexible um, and how prevalent, right, these uh, remote working arrangements will be. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question, and it's an empirical question that we'll, we'll have to look at to un, um, that'll unfold in the next few years. So I think in, in a year or two from now, we can actually see whether more flexible arrangements and more remote arrangements for employment, whether we'll see women kind of fall down of the independent workforce and go more to employment just because they provide such greater flexibility. Uh, okay. Again, I think this will be different depending on, it might, it might look differently depending on uh, how much flexibility employers adopt. Okay. So the number one reason for, for uh, choosing independent work is flexibility. Is, that, is there anything else or is that really the number one? Right. So the number one reason is choosing flexibility. Now, some economics studies also find that we see ind- uh, people going into independent work opportunities after they face income declines or unemployment as well. So it's a way of smoothing consumption is what they find. So you've got like those two kind of as the main reasons, although the preference reason is flexibility by far. And we see that across um, across you know, all, all surveys that that I've looked at. And then again, there's a secondary reason, which is you might have just faced income loss or unemployment. And you, uh, you'll see workers going into these um, independent work arrangements for that reason as well. 
what else are you working on and what research are we going to see in the coming months or the coming year? So I'm uh, continuing to work on trying to unpack what um, what a portable benefit systems would look like on different, um, I'm thinking about it on state levels as well. So um, you'll, you'll be seeing some of that come out soon. And then I'm continuing to unpack these differences between employees and independent workers, because I think it's, real, it's important that uh, we acknowledge that, you know, they are different types of work. They serve us different needs and there's different preferences uh, among workers, right? So some prefer flexibility, others prefer stability. And so they might go to employment arrangements to prefer stability. So those are uh, the two main things I'm working on. And my, my colleague who um, is in the same program with me on labor innovation and opportunity is working on the other side of things, which is thinking about the skills issue, right? With the growing adoption of automation in the workplace. So uh, with, our, with our program, uh, we're putting together hopefully new and interesting research for all of you on both the growing adoption of automation in the workplace and what we what can be done from a skills level and also thinking about independent workers and just changes in notions of portable benefits and, and how we think about that. All right, we've come to the end of our time, but I want to say if anybody wants to chat with Leah or her uh, coworker, Michael Farron, uh, just send us an email. We'll be happy to set up a conversation uh, with anybody you'd like to chat with. And if you're interested in any of Leah's research, again, send us a quick note. We'll make sure that you get uh, either her research or some of the studies that she's referenced. With that, thank you very much, Leah. I appreciate you joining me today. And I thank everybody else who tuned in. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.